Bismillahirrahmanirrahim الذي من علينا بنعمة الإسلام نتوكل على الله ونعوذ به ونتوب إليه وندعوه يا نور السماوات والأرض اللهم اجعل في قلوبنا نورا واجعل في أسماعنا نورا واجعل في أبصارنا نورا اللهم اعظم لنا نورا واجعل في أهالينا نورا وفي بيوتنا نورا اللهم اجعل في أمتنا نورا واجعل في كلامنا نورا وبركة وصلاح يا علي عظيم وصلي وسلم وبارك على محمد النبي المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الرسل أجمعين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين In so many of the khutbahs, I focus on the theme of Muslim awareness of their own, the realities of their own situation in life. I focus 
on shedding light or emphasizing the challenges that confront us collectively as Muslims. There is an obvious reason for that, and that is the realities that we live through as an Ummah. It would be simply immoral and indeed sinful to ignore the plight of fellow Muslims to, for instance, ignore what Muslims in China are going through or what the Rohingyas are going through and to focus on topics that soothe the feelings and the emotions of Muslims that reside in the United States in relative luxury and ease. Because even the most needy Muslim in the United States, their needs cannot be compared to the plight of a Muslim in China or a Rohingya Muslim from Myanmar or even a Muslim in the Palestinian refugee camps. So there is a basic principle of morality and a basic principle of Islamic uprightness and Islamic ethics. And another obvious reason is that the problems that Muslims confront only seem to escalate and become more exasperated as time goes by. And Allah has promised us repeatedly that either we enjoin what is good and stand against what is wrong, either we embody the principle of the Muslim Ummah that is worthy of carrying God's covenant, that either we rise up to the honored status of those who represent Allah's covenant on earth, or Allah has told us repeatedly that Allah would replace us with others and that they will not be like us. It is core to Islam that there is no chosen people 
by virtue of their genealogy or virtue of their genes or virtue of their lineage, you are chosen on the basis of your deeds and your actions. If you, regardless of how honored your lineage or your race or your ethnicity in your own mind might be, if you do not rise up to what Allah demands of you in terms of virtue, then you are simply not chosen. And in fact, could be chosen for exactly the opposite thing. And that is God's wrath instead of God's blessings. These are basic and core. But a further point and the point that I want to touch on is the role of the Muslim, the role of a Muslim who takes the podium of the Prophet Every Juma podium is the podium of the Prophet When the Prophet was not speaking or acting in his capacity as a messenger, there was only one other capacity and that is his capacity as a teacher. Put it differently, the Prophet either spoke to communicate the literal revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, simply communicating literally what he receives as revelation or other than that he was a teacher it is wonderfully captured when allah reminds the prophet remind them for your role is to remind them. In fact, that is your core role. You don't control them. You don't have hegemonic power over them. And you're not supposed to have that power over them. A mudhakkir, a reminder, is precisely a teacher. That is what a teacher is. If you have nothing to remind your people of, then you are not a teacher. The core role of a teacher is someone 
who spends a great deal of time learning, either specializing in specific core topics or a great deal of time researching and learning a number of topics to then serve as a bridge to these topics towards a target audience, whether these audience are students in a school, this audience are students in a university, this audience are people sitting in front of you at a sermon, whatever it is, your core role is that of an instructor, a muzakkir, a reminder, because your role is not to exercise choices for people. And your role is not to engineer or manipulate people. Your role is not to take away people's autonomy or act on behalf of people. And your role is not to somehow in any way mitigate the accountability or responsibility of people or indeed yourself. But your role is to remind and teach. And that was the core role that the Prophet ﷺ played. And we often forget this. We often forget that what the Prophet ﷺ relied on with his companions was the word, simple speech, communicates words and either people accept his words and make a commitment and all make the decision to change the course of their life on the basis of how they relate to these words or completely reject these words and walk away. Every podium in Islam since the Prophet ﷺ died has been symbolically the podium of the Prophet. Its burdens because that podium was occupied by a great man once upon a time. When you step into that podium, you attempt to fulfill truly a grand role that you cannot ever meet. But at least you owe that podium a diligent search, a diligent search for the truth, a diligent search for justice, a diligent search for what is educational and instructional, and a diligent search for 
superior knowledge. In other words, you must exceed. You must exceed. The knowledge base that is achieved by other human beings. If you are unable to exceed that, then you should not step on that podium. It is not a podium for fraternal conversations. It is not a podium for a nedwa or a chat or a friendly gathering in a social setting. It's not a diwaniya, as the Arabs used to call it. It is an instructional podium, a teaching role. And if you are accepting a teaching role, then you must teach. And if you teach, there is a moral obligation that bonds you to your students, that by definition become your students if they sit before your podium. And what bonds you to those students is that you do not convey to them misleading information that undefined in the hereafter might put you first and more for, foremost as a teacher in the position of someone who has committed malpractice, in the position of someone who has not exercised due diligence, in the position of a teacher who has failed his duties as a teacher, first and foremost. Well, what type of things could put you in that position? If there are, to give you an example from the heart of Islamic history, If there is a Mongol army about to invade the mosques, the, the city of Baghdad, and the Imam gets up on the podium to talk about correct wudu and the precise way that you should place your forehead on the floor when doing sujood. Is that malpractice? Absolutely. Because you owe those who have trusted you an obligation to teach diligently, which means to testify honestly and to testify in light of what is most serious and most compelling 
for their life as Muslims. And if there is a Mongol army on the gates of Baghdad, you giving them the impression that the most pressing issues in their life is correct performance of wudu in the context of the podium of the Prophet instead of some other opportunity focused to teaching perhaps those who don't know how to do how to do it. But while everyone has had the opportunity to start to to fully be conscious of the clear and present danger that they confront. I say this because the first thing that an ummah loses before it disintegrates and crumbles, it becomes confused about its relationship to the word. The word is the secret of creation. The word is revelation. The world is the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created everything and engineered everything. Kun fayakun, be, and it was. The word is what differentiates the rational, thinking, accountable human being from beings that are not rational and not accounting. It is that gift of speech. The word. And when an ummah loses its relationship to the word so that it is no longer guided by principled ideas, but by simple impulses and reactive modes. It is only a matter of time before the ummah disintegrates. This is exactly what is so dangerous, for instance, among those in the United States who go around saying fake news about facts. The more of them there are, it is only a matter of time before a nation that does not respect facts, whether scientific, whether social facts, whether political facts, whether facts of justice, facts of ethics, facts of virtue, it is only a matter of time before that nation completely disintegrates. In fact, those who do not love the United States, if you did not like the United States and you wanted to make sure that the U.S. is destroyed, you would encourage that attitude towards speech and facts. If you don't like it, just reject it and call it fake. Because the more of it there is, 
the more you guarantee that that nation will not survive. Well, before, long before that ever happened to the United States, that happened to Muslims. It happened the first time when we wanted to say no or we don't really feel like it, we started saying inshallah. It happened the first time when we started wanting to escape moral responsibility to commit to justice, we started saying, Hasbi Allah wa na'mal wakil. Hasbi Allah wa na'mal wakil is supposed to be a statement of your belief in Allah's justice. Instead, we've turned it into a statement that we utter when we want to legitimate powerlessness and cowardliness and absolute lack of principle. It happened when we started avoiding our responsibility towards standing up for a principle by declaring in the well, we'll meet in the hereafter. And in the hereafter, I'm going to prosecute my case in front of you. Well, did it ever occur to you that if you fail to defend a just cause on this earth, perhaps Allah will not give you the opportunity to defend that cause in the hereafter because you betrayed the cause by failing it on this earth. This attitude is so rampant in the Muslim world. Every time Muslims confront injustice, I can predict that they're going to do what they call, what we call hasbana, they'll say hasbi Allah na'am al-wakil, oh I, I trust Allah as if, but they say it to escape responsibility, not because it's a, a statement of commitment to God's truth, or that God's belief in God's aid. And similarly, I can always predict that they're going to say, oh, you know, I'm not going to defend my cause on this earth because when we go up before God and hereafter, I will prosecute my case then. In a word, in a word, when the podiums of the Prophet failed, the Muslim Ummah failed. When on the podiums of the Prophet rose Imams that tried to convince Muslims that Napoleon had converted to Islam and did dua for Napoleon and Emilium Napoleon Bonaparte as they used to call him. 
the Muslim Ummah fail. Because that Imam was either ignorant enough, didn't know much about French Revolution, didn't know much about French politics, to know that the French were not there to befriend any Muslims, they were there to slaughter. Or that Imam knew and was a liar. In either case, they failed the podium of the Prophet. When the Imams got up on the podiums to try to convince Palestinians not to worry about Jewish migration to Palestine and to try to convince them to cooperate with British authorities, the podium of the Prophet failed and the Ummah failed. When the Imams got on the podium to try to convince Muslims that Islam was a socialist religion and so they should not rebel against the socialist governments or Marxist governments and that they should not be troubled by the political oppression and political injustice committed in Muslim countries the podium of the Prophet failed and the Muslim Ummah failed. The podium of the Prophet is a sanctified position. You keep it clean, you keep the Ummah clean. You allow it to be solid and desecrated, you've destroyed the entire Ummah. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين It's the responsibility of the podium of the Prophet is a very heavy one. A very heavy one which often presents me with the consistent question of what truly should be first and foremost 
on the Zuma podium. And the immediately interlinked question, well, if this should be first and foremost, then where is it in the Jumas of the Ummah? For instance, not long ago, the president of France gave a speech in France announcing new laws that his government intends to, pa to pass that specifically target Muslims in France to quote-unquote force Muslims in France to assimilate. Of course, Macron doesn't talk about racism, ingrained, horrible, abysmal, disgusting racism of the French against Turks and Arabs and Somalis in France, he doesn't even address that as a problem at all. And the fact that this racism forced Muslims in France into low-paying jobs and forced them to live in ghettos. I lived in France for a while, and I can tell you that even being able to rent an apartment if you were an Arab was a problem in Paris. Because as an Arab, white France didn't want to rent you an apartment. And as an Arab, I had to pay an exaggerated price to get white landlords to just rent me. So these ghettos in Paris are ghettos the direct product of French racism. But Macron didn't talk about that. He blamed the victim for their condition. Muslims are living in ghettos not because they are discriminated against, not because of French racism, not because of French colonial history, but because Muslims don't want to assimilate, don't want to be real French, and because Islam has a problem with the world. And the world has a problem with Islam. He gave a most disturbing speech 
about how Islam is going through a crisis and the crisis is that Islam hasn't adapted itself to the demands of modernity and that Islam is a religion that has a problem with its tendencies, tendencies, trends towards exclusivism and insularity and separateness. I could have said, well, Macron is a racist leader talking to a post-colonial racist society. After all, France pursues remarkably colonial and racist policies in all over Africa dealing with the most corrupt despots and continuing the oppression of the population of its former colonies. I could have said that, but for a problem. The remarkable thing is that the president of this country says things that are identical, word for for word, what you would expect reading a Daniel Pipes or Stephen Emerson or Robert Spencer or Walid Faris or any of the Islamophobes that filled the United States and England and the Muslim world is in complete silence. Not only does the so-called servant of the of the two holy sites, the great representative of Muslims, after all, where's Mecca and Medina in the hands of Al Saud? Aren't Al Saud supposed to represent at least Sunni Islam? Complete and utter silence. How about the great bastion of tolerance, the Emirat, that is so outraged by religious religious intolerance that they invite the Pope and they build a huge church in the middle of Abu Dhabi and, 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 not a word. Because when it comes to religious intolerance against Muslims, the Emirat is not interested. They're only interested if those being persecuted are Jews or Christians or Buddhists or Hindus. But it's okay. If you want to persecute Muslims, the Emirat has no problem with that. But it doesn't stop there. Complete silence all over the Muslim world. The only voice that spoke up was the president of Turkey who described what the French president said as insolent. 
and impolite and rude. But podiums of the Prophet all over, at least mosques in the United States and England, in Europe, here is the French president talking about targeting the six to eight million Muslims in France, saying that I will start creating restrictions, further restrictions on wearing the hijab, on Islamic schools that teach the Quran. I will create further restrictions on homeschooling for those Muslims who don't want their children to take off the hijab so they, they school them at home. It's saying I target the Muslim population in France as a problem in an atmosphere of rampant Islamophobia in Europe, in the place a lot of the language that Macron used is identical to the language of the European Manifesto that was written by what was written by Brevik before he committed his infamous massacre. It is the same identical language, and yet the entire Muslim world is absolutely silent. But at the same time that Macron said what he said, how many Muslims know that just this past year, there were over, over a thousand hate crimes committed in Paris alone against Muslim institutions and organizations. Shortly after Macron made his speech, one of the major Muslim NGOs that provides humanitarian relief to two million Muslims around the world, an organization called Baraka City, which incidentally, Macron's government has investigated repeatedly for links with terrorism and found none and was forced to abandon their investigation. Shortly after Macron's speech, that NGO was raided, the furniture of the NGO destroyed, the men and wife who run this NGO were arrested and mistreated. But there is a more core problem. Macron, who went on about how Islam doesn't understand lofty French values of liberty, egality, fraternity, and how Islam is a danger to civilized values 
These values being secularism, French secularism, how many Muslims and how many khutbas spoke about the fact that this same French government has made rapprochements towards Christianity in France that are unprecedented in the history of France since the French Revolution. The French Revolution was rapidly anti-Catholic. And for many years, Catholicism and the government in France had nothing to do with each other. At the same time that Macron is attacking Islam and Muslims, he is bringing France closer to Christianity than ever before. How many people remembered that this same French president or this same French government that is talking about secularism at the same time that France insisted on secularism within its borders, no government, no Western government, no Western government was responsible for building and establishing and running more Christian schools all over the Muslim world than France. France, the bastion of secularism, there is hardly a single country in the Muslim world that doesn't have a Christian French school being run on its soil. France established schools in every country they colonized, and they're all Christian schools. And they're all there not to teach colonized people democracy and liberty, but ironically to teach colonized people Christianity. Most of them are missionary schools. How many Nigeria, Mali, Senegal, Algeria, Tunisia, how many of these former colonies were taught democracy and liberty by the French? None. But how many were taught the French language? All. How many were taught, given a taste for French fashions, fashions, French bags, French shoes, French perfumes, all? How many were inculcated with doubts towards their own faith and towards Islam and the tradition of Islam, all? And how many of these countries had French Catholicism spread in them? All. But you know, what is even more remarkable than what the French president said 
was that shortly after the Mufti of Egypt in an attempt either following orders, the orders of the Egyptian government or attempting to kiss up to Sisi, I saw a transcript with my own eyes. He said that for Muslims in the West, second and third generation Muslims, half of them belong to ISIS and all of them are heavily influenced by the ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood. Demonizing Muslims in the West instead of rebutting or answering or responding to Macron's racism sends out a message that is loud and clear that Muslims in the West are a source of danger and not to be trusted. Now, that message, uttered by the Mufti of Egypt, mirrors the message given by the president of Egypt when he was visiting the West and the US and warned Western governments against Islamic centers in the West and said, don't let democracy fool you. Don't let political correctness fool you. Monitor these Islamic centers very carefully because they can all be a source of radicalism and extremism. And don't be nice with these Islamist people. Don't trust them. Which happens to also mirror what the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates said repeatedly in Europe and in the US, which happens to be exactly what Netanyahu says about Muslims in the West, which happens to be identical to what Daniel Pipes and Stephen Emerson and Robert Spencer have been saying about Muslims in the West for the past couple of decades. Look at this wonderful circle. Islamophobes, Muslim leaders in the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, the Mufti of Egypt, the head of one of the most racist and colonial governments, the French president, all in one bed. Does this have concrete results? Why should you know about all of this? Can't you just go on living your life as Muslims, oblivious, and the podium of the Prophet would not be troubled? Well, here, is the here are the concrete results. Recent article, the mosque of Sultan Suleiman Atik Mosque in Bosnia was vandalized for the millionth time with an art article detailing 
the rise in Serbian nationalism and Serbian and Croatian triumphalism and how and the rise in Serbian and Croatian racism and Islamophobia and how Muslims in Bosnia are anticipating the coming of another genocide. If you weren't conscious enough with the first Bosnian genocide, this is the genocide that, that witnessed the creation of rape camps where thousands of Muslim women were raped systematically and regularly for months on end. Islamophobia, after creating the genocide of the Rohingyas in Burma, and after creating the concentration camps in China, and after creating the massacre in the New Zealand mosque, and after giving rise to Trump and his peace treaty and the betrayal of Palestinians, Islamophobia, after doing all of that, is once again laying the ground for yet another genocide against Bosnian Muslims. And mark my word, it will happen. It's only a matter of time. But Islamophobia, not only that, Islamophobia gave rise to Muhammad bin Salman in Saudi. And Islamophobia gave rise to Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt. And Islamophobia gave rise to Muhammad bin Zayed in the Emirates. Islamophobia, the demon in our bed. But we want to continue on talking about our nice little topics, our nice little lives, about our friendly issues. Islamophobia. Recently, Cuba organized a statement. The authoritarian government of Cuba drafted a statement in support of the Chinese government and its policies towards the Uyghur Muslims, all Muslims at this point, by the way, in China, because not just the Uyghur Muslims, but the Kazakhs and all other Muslims are now being thrown in concentration camps, dying in the thousands. Here is the list of Muslim countries that signed Cuba's statement supporting the genocide against the genocide against Muslims in China. Bahrain, Egypt, Eritrea, Iran, Iraq, Madagascar, Morocco, Pakistan, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen.
If you are conscientious Muslims, if you are Muslims that actually care about the podium of the Prophet, go to your Imam. If your Imam hasn't talked about this, haven't talked about the types of issues that we are talking about, say, Imam, why is it that you don't talk to us about these issues? Ask them if they think they're not important, if they think they're not a priority. But second, if you are a conscientious Muslim, demand that your imam have a clear and unequivocal position towards all the governments that I just read, the Muslim governments that I just read, as supporting, because these governments are exactly like the governments that supported Nazi Germany when Nazi Germany committed the Holocaust. The head of the Muslim World League from Saudi Arabia goes, visits the Holocaust Memorial and says in front of a Jewish audience, never again, but is falling all over himself to support the Holocaust, Chinese Holocaust against Muslims. If you are a conscientious Muslim, go to your Imam and say, have you taken a position against Bahrain, against Egypt, against Eritrea, Iran, Iraq, Morocco, Pakistan, the government of Palestine, Saudi, Sudan, Syria, United Arab Emirates, and Yemen, have you taken a position against these governments? Do I have your assurance that you do not take any money from these countries? That you accept no visit from the government, no visit sponsored by, the, by these governments because they're criminal governments. That is the standard that you must demand of your imam. And if they are not willing to give you these guarantees, if they tell you, oh, in this mosque, we don't talk about foreign governments. In this mosque, we don't talk about Egypt. We don't talk about Saudi Arabia. We don't talk about the United Arab Emirates. We don't criticize them. They know, you know that you have a fundamental betrayal of the podium of the Prophet. And that you must promptly walk out of there and vote by objecting and withdrawing your support. That is the least that you can do. Maybe if we start doing this, our faith as an ummah will start changing. قول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم اللهم اعف عنا اللهم ارحمنا يا رب العالمين اللهم تب علينا علينا يا تواب اللهم انصر الإسلام وعز المسلمين وارفع بفضلك كلمة الحق والدين الله forgive our sins and guide us towards a straight path gift us with your light gift us with your mercy gift us with your beauty allow us to be better Muslims and more sincere and more convicted 
and principled Muslims, Ya Ali Ya Azim, wa salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi wa akhim as salah. Allahu Akbar, 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 Allahu Akbar,